Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Um, guys, great to be with you this morning. My name is Benji, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet. Um, we're going to spend the next few minutes uh, spending some time in God's, God's Word. Uh, we're in the middle of a series right now called Thou Shall Be Free. We're looking at this moment in Israel's history where God's rescued them from slavery and he's bringing them into the promised land. And in between those two moments and spaces, he promises himself to them. Uh, he says, I am the Lord your God. You are my people. And he gives them this relational covenant document in terms of this is what it looks like to live the life I intended you to live, which is a life of freedom. And he gives us these 10 commandments, and we've been looking at one each week. And so today we land on the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. This is going to be the shortest sermon you've ever heard, so <laughs> we're good? Like, okay, you guys can go home. <laughs> like, pretty self-explanatory. Um, but uh, it, in a sense, it is very straightforward. But, but Jesus decides to take this specific commandment and he expounds on it as an issue of the heart. And that's where we're going to be camping out uh, today is the condition of our heart that God is always after. So if you are willing and able, uh, would you stand to your feet with me? We're going to read all of the Ten Commandments this morning. This is an, found in Exodus chapter 20. It will be on your screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Um, but just in general, we encourage you guys to bring, bring a Bible. Um, make this, there's something, um, I think that's a gift about holding something in your hand um, that costs people their lives to have. And there's something precious about us having, um, just holding this and making sure that whatever I say, and, and I say this all the time, but I, I work really hard to approach this with reverence and prayer and study, um, but to know that this is, you don't have to take my word for it. We want to take God's word, what it's worth. And so we always want to encourage you to do that. And this is why we stand. We want to honor more than the notes or the points or the fill-ins that we'll have. Uh, this is the word of God, and we want to honor it. Uh, and so this is why we do this. So Exodus chapter 20 says, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me and do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave any unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and to do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servants, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. 
Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor and do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, so like I mentioned, I was uh, approaching this week. I was a bit curious in terms of like what direction the Lord would have us go in this. And, um, and so what I would like to do is just kind of give you a map of, of what we're going to be talking about today. Number one, I, I want to just uh, back up 30,000 feet, and I wanted us to be reminded of how Jesus summarizes all of these commands. Um, give us some perspective. This kind of gives us a high vision. Secondly, I want to talk about the heart. And then thirdly, I want to talk about how we live out in a practical way those applications. And lastly, I want to talk about the hope that we have. Um, that Jesus has brought to us through the cross. And so, number one, the high vision. So, before we um, dive into the explanation of these different commands, specifically the sixth one today, um, I want to draw you to a conversation that Jesus had while he was on earth when the Pharisees, which were a group of biblical scholars and a group of people who knew the law, um, and when I say the law, I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible, backwards and forwards, had the entire thing memorized, had a conversation with him about this. So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, when we say the law, it oftentimes refers to the ten, but often it can refer to the entire commentary of the law, which is about 613 of them in the Old Testament. And so he's asking, what's the greatest? And Jesus responds, and he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, we should pay close attention to this because Jesus... His, which name we found out a couple weeks ago literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh to the rescue, is being asked to say which one of all the laws that were given was the greatest. And Jesus, we know in retrospect, is the one who gave these laws. He's the one who has the greatest ability to give commentary on them. It says if you're in an art gallery and you're looking at a piece of art and you ask the artist, uh, what does it mean? And only the artist is going to be able to give you the proper interpretation of that piece of art. Um, despite all, everyone's like, well, I think it could be this, or draws this kind of emotion, or does this thing. But what I find really interesting is Jesus is about to give this, this beautiful revelation. And what he says, he doesn't give one, he gives two, but he kind of summarizes them as one. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. Which is interesting, that's exactly how the Ten Commandments start. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And scholars oftentimes take the Ten Commandments and they break it up into four and six. The four meaning this is how we love God, and the six is how we love our neighbor. And so Jesus, in essence, is summarizing the Ten Commandments. He's saying this is what we ought to do. This is the summary of the law. You love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor. Now, the reason I wanted to begin there is because oftentimes 
When we look at something like a document like the Ten Commandments, all we see is rules. We see don't do this, which is literally what it says today. Do not murder. But I think what we need to understand is all of that is framed within the command, love your neighbor, love the Lord. And this is why I I appreciate Daryl Johnson's summary of this specific command is this is a protest against inhumanity. Romans 13.8 is Paul again referencing this. He says, the one who loves, um, loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And I I wanted just to draw our attention to that the point of the Ten Commandments, if if I'm understanding the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul are right, is to move us into a people of love. It's to move us into a community marked by how we love God and marked by how we love our neighbor. And so if that's the the gravitational pull of this community and of our heart is to move more and more into the people of, of love, all of a sudden we're going to be able to start understanding um, what's going on here. That this is all... This is all us learning how to move into that place, which moves to our second point, is that ultimately this is about our heart. The commandments and the sixth commandment is about the condition of our heart. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for murder is not kill in general, although a lot of older English translations would use that word. It's the Hebrew word, rasak, and rasak means to, in our understanding, like a first-degree premeditated murder. So this sermon will not go into like some of the complexities of just war theory or things like that. Um, but this command specifically is do not make the decision to take someone else's life because they're in your way. You don't like them. They've hurt you. They've offended you is the, is the whole basis of this. Now, I want to pause for a moment because, again, if we remember the context of where this came from, there's a sadness to this command. There's a sadness not only because of the explicit nature, it's the fact that it had to be given at all. And if we remember that these people come out of 400 years of slavery, part of the narrative of slavery is that your life is a tool, it's disposable. And something happens generationally as you start to hear that, is that the value of human life would start to erode. It would start to decay. And this is, I think, what Yahweh, as he speaks this command to Israel, is saying, we're not going to live like that anymore. We don't get to decide if someone's life is worth keeping or not. Life is valuable would be another way I think you could interpret the sixth commandment. Life matters to to God, and it needs to matter to us. Johnson in his book says this, the great tragedy is that the living God should even have to utter those words. The great tragedy is that creatures creatures of the good God made in the good image of the good God should have to be told not to take the life of another creature. 
It ought to be self-evident that another person's life is sacred, however young or old, however deformed or evil. Can you feel the great grief in Yahweh's voice when it comes to speaking the sixth commandment? And I just love that sense. Like there's, there's a grief coming across in this command that somehow this ancient culture come to a place where this was a debatable issue. And he says, no, 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 life matters. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his masterpiece, The Cost of Disciples, says, the sixth commandment tells us that another person's life is a boundary which we dare not pass. This is something that God has deemed. And you might be like, well, where, where do we get that? If you turn to Psalm 139, we see the reflection of King David writing about the, the value of human life when he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Now, it's a key line. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, which is why Bonhoeffer says, that is a boundary we do not pass because of the value that God has ordained, the beginning and the ending of our days. I was having a conversation this week with, with, um, with someone in our church who's visiting his father who's um, uh, not doing well in the hospital. And he said this line. He says, you know, this has been hard and heavy, but I'm not concerned because my father is immortal until his kingdom work here is done. And it's a sense of that, uh, that God holds our life. Now, what that doesn't mean is that removes grief because I think death in general reminds us how valuable life is. That there's not a single moment in life, regardless if someone has lived a full life or whether it's been far too soon, where there's not grief accompanied by that loss. And that reminds us something very, very powerful, is that when we see the narrative unfold in the Garden of Eden, we were never meant to experience death. It's why grief is not only painful, it feels strange. It feels foreign. What other thing in the world has every culture seen, witnessed, been a part of, and will end up being their destiny that still feels so foreign? We've never gotten a grip on it because we were never designed for it. Which again plays into this command. It says, listen, you don't get to cross that boundary. And the early church took upon this high value of human life as one of its early markers. And we saw this happen, and you can read it not just in the New Testament, but if you read different history, both from the Greek and the Jewish perspective, one of the things they'll write about the early church is the kinds of people they would welcome into their community. One of the ancient practices that was that marked kind of the Greco-Roman worldview was this idea that if a child was born and that child was of the wrong gender or that child had some sort of deformity, um, that you had the legal right to go and leave it on the hillside as an offering to the pagan god. 
This practice was called exposing children. You can Google it. This is not like in like some sort of scholarly textbook. This was a normal practice within the Greco-Roman world, is that this life only had value if it fit the desire that we wanted. And so what the early church would begin to do is in the middle of the night, they would go and they would rescue the children. And these children would then be raised up in the early churches. Now imagine that kind of community. A community of people whose life began with the narrative, you are easy to discard. You are maybe a burden not worth carrying. And the early church was the one who stepped in because of this theology, the high value of human life. And so when Paul, in the book of Ephesians, which was written to a Greco-Roman culture, writes these words, I want you to hear these words through the lens of someone who would have they themselves been one of those children. For he, for God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We weren't an afterthought. No one in this room was an afterthought. No one in this room just showed up because of a decision or because of a lack of a decision that was made. That God chose you. In love, he predestined, meaning he destined you for something. There's there's purpose attached to your life. And that predestination is for adoption to sonship. Meaning that he knew every person in this room, every person who would read these words, every single life that has ever existed in this world, it says, you have so much value. I knew you before you were even born. And that life was purposed. That life had destiny. And the trajectory of that purpose was that you would be adopted, welcomed into a new family. Which is why I think adoption is one of the, the greatest expressions of the gospel that we have in the world today. With that, I wanted to share just a a quick um, update for our family, personally, um, as well as hopefully an extended opportunity for our church in the months and years to come. Um, When I met Jen, who's my wife, if you don't know, we've been married 17 years now, She's leading worship at our downtown location this morning. But when we met, she had spent the entire summer living in the Dominican Republic working at an orphanage. And that same summer, I had been working in Ukraine for a few weeks, working with kids coming off the street and getting brought into another orphanage. And so when we met, before we, taught, before we knew we were interested in each other, or before she knew she was interested in me, I knew from like site one I was interested in her. Um, But some of our early conversations, before we even talked about dating, we talked about how we both had a desire for adoption. And it was so imprinted on our hearts, this need for there are children for whatever reasons. Some of them because of the abject poverty they're born into, some of them for really dark and sinister reasons, but for whatever the reason, there are children out there that desperately need a home. And so that moment that sparked probably 18, 19 years ago, um, we just wanted to let you know that Jen and I are right now, and we, we share this less of announcement, but as an invitation, would you pray for us? Is last fall, we entered into the process of adoption. Um, and so we are prayerfully and actively working right now to, um, to adopt from an uh, orphanage that we partner with in Malawi. And our hope is that this would not just be... Um, a story for our family, but our hope is that this would continue to spur on what is already being birthed here, 
Uh, there are children in this church because many of you have said, I want to step into the foster care system. I want to adopt. I want to care for children. There are many of you that have your own children. They've done this. And I think this is such a beautiful expression of the Church of Christ because we can make jokes about the Sixth Commandment being kind of just like two on the nose, but I think specifically in the culture that we live in, I think one of the greatest things we can do as followers of Christ is to remind the world around us that there is not a single life on this earth that does not matter dearly to our God. And that that means we move our life into such a way that can welcome that, support that, pray for that, is something that we align with the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. As Jesus is talking about this, as Jesus is talking about this sixth commandment, he goes on to have this conversation on the Sermon on the Mount. When he looks at the Pharisees, he says, I, I am the fulfillment of the law. And in Matthew 5.20, he says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to pause right now, because that, that sentence would have made you very nervous. A sentence just said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So in that world, their, their framework was that there was no one more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. They were the experts of the law. They knew every single law that, that, that they could have recited it, and they made sure they kind of policed and made sure people were doing this. But right after that statement, Jesus goes and starts giving commentary on the sixth commandment. And this is where I want us to kind of camp out for most of the morning. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now, this is, in essence, what Jesus does almost the entire Sermon on the Mount. He'll say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he'll quote a phrase that everyone would have agreed on. This is why we laughed at the beginning of the commandment, right? We said, like, hey, do not murder. We're all like, good. All right, can we go? You know, got to go, like, get the chili ready for today. Jesus says, not so fast. And he does, not just with this law, he does it with so many things. He says, it's not just about the outward behavioral modification. This command was given because it has to do with your heart. And then he goes and he gives these three different scenarios. He says, if you're angry, if you insult, if you go as far to say you fool, which another way to translate that is you, you're, you're not even a person. Like, you lack heart, you lack soul. And what's interesting is you can almost see that escalating. So if you're angry, which everyone in this room has been angry, 
This is not just anger in general, which the Bible says is appropriate, but there's a kind of anger that breaches over into sin, which is why it says, in your anger, do not sin. He's talking about that kind of anger. We've all had it. Maybe this morning, right? <laughs> Trying to get through the kook run. Um, then he takes it up another level. He says, and don't, it says, and then you insult, which would have meant you're empty-minded. Like you, you think less of someone. You look down on someone. Again, all of us have done this. And then he goes on to say, and if you go as far as to say, you fool, which would have been, it, it reads kind of mellow, but that would have been an extreme insult in that, in that culture. It would have been like, you're not even a person. And so Jesus is escalating this thing. He's trying to show us that the sixth commandment, which says do not murder, that we could hopefully in this room just be like, yeah, we're good. Uh, says It doesn't start there. There's a trajectory that builds, which is why he says the judgments attached to these build. He says, if, you, if you're angry, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult someone, you'll be liable to the court. And then he says, and if, you're, if you are looking down as people that they're not even human beings, he says, you are liable to Gehenna, which was the city dump fire that was burning at the south end of Jerusalem. Like your life is starting to look like a, a, a city dump. And what he's trying to do in this moment, and, and I think it's beautiful, is he's looking at this group of people like the Pharisees and scribes. Says, you think you know the rules and that's enough, but what you, don't, what you haven't evaluated is your heart. And so for us, even the, the, opening, the opening part of the sermon, we could always say like, yeah, like I believe in the Imago Dei. I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe that there's not a single life, regardless of age or um, if it's so old or still in the womb, that life matters to God. We can believe in that. But this is where Jesus starts to take it a, a little bit more personal. He says, yeah, but how's your heart? Are you harboring anger in your heart towards someone? Because that needs to be addressed. You need to, and this is where all of us can kind of like sit back a little bit, like, oh, okay, maybe this command isn't so, you know, cut and dry. Maybe there's something that God wants to do in my heart. And this is for me, this is where my evaluation. So, so how, do we, how do we do this? How do we apply this sixth commandment, which seemingly doesn't apply to a context like ours, maybe to an ancient culture, primitive culture, but not like ours. But we look at the words of Jesus and we say, okay, may, maybe it does. Maybe there's something of my heart that needs to be evaluated. I've been holding on to bitterness or resentment or jealousy. I've spoken down and looked down at people. And if that's you, just some things to consider. Number one, pay attention to the seedbed of your heart. What are the things that you nurse and curse and rehearse in your heart? What are the things that you just kind of mull over that person that every time their name gets brought up, your like heart rate just goes up a little bit? And God's, God doesn't want that to fester. Casey Hansen writes, actions do not come out of nowhere. Murder does not come out of nowhere. Acts emerge from our hearts. Jesus, therefore, makes us face what is going on in our hearts. This is why Proverbs 4.23 is one of my favorite verses. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Another translation says, guard your heart with all vigilance. Vigilance meaning your head's on a swivel. You're always watching for the condition of your heart. Is it growing hard towards people? Is it, is it growing in resentment or bitterness? And that's the first one. Just pay attention to the seedbed of your heart. Secondly, 
Discover a renewed dignity for the Imago Dei. Daryl Johnson writes, To take another person's life is to speak our no to God's yes. Every human life, however young or old, however deformed or evil, is sacred. Sacred because every human life, regardless of the circumstance in which is conceived, is the work... Sorry about that. Is the work of God. To take the life of another human being is to destroy that work of God. Which is why in James 1.27 says these powerful words. And this won't be on your screen, but listen to this. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I love that verse for two reasons. Number one, we live like in our... In our current cultural climate, religion is kind of like a bad word. The problem is the Bible speaks very strongly against religiosity, but not against religion. Matter of fact, the Bible gives us a beautiful vision for what good religion looks like. This says right here, pure and undefiled religion, faultless religion looks like this. Caring for what? The orphans and the widows. The people whose society has said don't have value. They're a nuisance. They're taking away. Because caring for them is what pure and faultless religion looks like. And so I think maybe for you, you might be like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I, I, would just, I would just encourage you, notice for moments in your life, whether it's someone on the street, someone you know personally, someone you see on the news, that you are able to engage with and you, you've lacked that sense of the dignity God has placed in them. And prayerfully say, Lord, would I see every single life the way you see it? How many value human life in that kind of way? And the last kind of practical thing for us, and this is what Jesus says, which I find so interesting. He says that, he says that he gives all these instructions. says, hey, be careful of your anger. Be careful of your insults. Be careful of not looking at people as if they're human, human beings looking at people. And then he, and instead of saying like, hey, pray more. Or, you know, like just, you know, have better thoughts. Do you know what he says? He says, he gives two practical examples. He says, if while you're at church, or for them, while you're at temple offering, offering a sacrifice to God and you remember that there's something between you and your brother and sister, leave your offering there and go make it right. Like, go make it. This is how valuable God views this command. This is Jesus' commentary on the sixth commandment. He's saying, and and again, some, some of you guys are in church right now, which is great. If while this is happening, God, the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart towards things you are harboring in you against someone else. God's instruction would be, hey, before the last song of worship, go make it right. And what that looks like in this context, I love this. He doesn't go and say, go tell them what they did wrong. He says, go and ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness it seems right here, seems to be the goal of the Sixth Commandment. We live within a culture and in a community where forgiveness is practiced. The second analogy is this. is on your way to court, meaning there's a disagreement you can't resolve. It says settle it on the way. Figure it out. Which is going to do what? You're going to court because someone owes you something. And what he's saying is absorb the cost 
Absorb the cost because what's happening in your heart's not worth it. And again, this is, this is where I want us to just to kind of like let this sit with us, that Jesus starts with not murdering, which we're all like good, and he ends with forgiveness, and we're like, whoa. This is, this is getting a little bit too personal. Tim Keller, in his last book before he passed away, it's called Forgive, says this, there is always a cost to wrongdoing, and it must fall on someone. Either the wrongdoer bears it, or someone else must. This is true even if the wrong is not something that can be measured financially. The cost may be in reputation or relationship or health or something else. To forgive is to deny oneself revenge. I love that line. To forgive is to deny oneself revenge. To absorb the cost. To not exact repayment by inflicting on them the things they did to you in order to even the score. Therefore, forgiveness is always expensive to the forgiver. But the benefits... At the very least, within your heart, and at best, in the restoration of relationship and a witness to the power of the gospel outweighs the cost. And so, I think one of the most practical applications, just as a reminder to the sixth commandment, is number one, let us increase the value we have on human life. Secondly, let's pay attention to the seedbed of our own heart of resentment. And thirdly, let's be willing to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to move towards forgiveness, even if that means that we have to absorb the cost of what that looks like. And before we end, I I, want to end on this one thing. Is that forgiveness is always a tricky thing to, to preach. It's tricky because there are certain things, when you say forgive, that immediately the question comes up like, but do you know what they did to me? The reason why it's hard to forgive is because the magnitude of wrong that was done for me. And because the magnitude of wrong that was done to me, I'm nursing revenge in my heart. And my friends, what I want to do is I don't want to belittle what was done wrong to you. And some of you, the best thing you guys can do is, again, to, to call for justice. But there's something in your heart that God wants to start to press against gently, saying, hey, I want to deal with this thing because I love the, the idiom that's been passed around, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. See, unforgiveness, resentment, hatred, anger, all of those things, we do it because we think that it's actually helping bring justice but in the fact it's doing something against us. And the only way that this makes sense, because the question is, okay, if we're not going to be like an angry community, we're not going to be a community who, who makes sure that things are fair and just, because this, again, I can tell this is what some of you guys are feeling. If, we're, if you're asking us just to forgive like all these things, well, well what, what about justice? What about making sure things are right? And what I want to point your attention to is the only place where a loving and a just ethos connect is the cross. Where love and justice meet does not exist in the world other than the cross. Because it's at the cross where everything wrong, broken, dark, and evil was dealt with. And everything that was broken, everything that was hurt, everything that was the result of those wrongs was healed through love. 
This is why Daryl Johnson writes this, at the cross, the lawgiver breaks the power of inhumanity. How? The lawgiver takes all of the inhumanity upon himself. Inhumanity breeds counter-inhumanity. Violence breeds counter-violence. At the cross, the chains of violence is broken. The living God absorbs the, fall, the full onslaught of human inhumanity. I'm going to say that again. The living God at the cross absorbs the full onslaught of human inhumanity. The cross is the protest against inhumanity taken to the limit. Which is why in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, At the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what, what has the power? What has the power to disarm the power of hatred and murder? It's the cross. What has the power to inspire and empower us to forgive? It's the cross. What's the reminder of just how valuable every single human life is? It's the cross. The cross is the thing that as followers of Jesus, we view everything in life through. Because if we can view our life through the lens of the cross, all of these things begin to change. We look at a human life and you're like, you're so valuable, God was willing to die for you. We look at the wrongs that were done to us and we think that you're so valuable that God would die for you and that thing you've done to me has been paid for at the cross. Justice has been served. You see that none of this makes sense without the cross. We're left powerless. We're left guilty and shameful because we're not able to live with it. We read the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, man, I've, I've, I've harbored anger in my heart this week. And I have, to have the right, I have to have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. And the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, as it reminds you, is that this beautiful vision that we're invited into will never be fully met by yourself, but is fully met in Jesus' work on the cross. And when you have that picture, it does the opposite, and then empowers you to live a life of forgiveness. It empowers you to live a life of letting go of resentment, anger, and hurt. It lives you a life to empower, to view all human life as beautiful and sacred because God breathed his own breath into them. Aren't we thankful for the cross? And so for you and I, I'm going to invite the worship team to come join me. For you and I this morning, I want us just to consider which is a few different things. I want us to consider are, are there unresolved issues of, of bitterness in our life that have maybe moved towards resentment? And would we just come and would we leave them at the cross this morning? Would we trust the verse that when God says in Romans, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of that. Because vengeance for you will crush you. It will not create the outcome that you desire. And this is the beautiful thing. Is that the cross, the same instrument that brings justice and love in the same moment, 
is the same instrument, the same symbol, the same moment in history that's offered for you. You is part of what drove Jesus to that moment of ultimate love and self-sacrifice. They say you can live in forgiveness. You can let go of the things that have been damaging your heart. Man, I just sense that this morning. Some of, your, some of you, your joy and your life has been sucked out of you because you've been harboring this thing. And God is not asking you to say that that pain didn't matter. God's not asking you to say that that wasn't wrong. God is actually saying that does matter, that was wrong, and I'm grieving with you. And because of the cross, I'm declaring that wasn't right. But you can let that go now. You can let that go because if not, humanity left up up to its own devices of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth will become an incredibly marred and broken society, which is why he says we will become people of reconciliation. We will become a people of forgiveness. We will become a people who sees those who culture has dismissed and we will bestow upon them the value and the dignity that God sees them with. And that's not just for those out there, that's for you. It's given, it's extended to you because of the beauty of our God whose name means our God saves. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the cross. That as we let down the heavy weight of anger and vengeance, at the very same time we get to rest in the fact that our God is just And our God redeems. And maybe for you this morning, it's a simple prayer of saying, Lord, I don't know how to, but would you help me learn how to forgive? Would you help me learn how to let that go? And would I trust that you hold that in your hands? Would you stand to your feet with me as we pray? Step into a time of worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we could stand here this morning, we could say, on our own, our righteousness cannot surpass even the most disciplined and the most devout among us. It's not possible. We need something else. We need the cross. Lord, I want to pray, Lord God, that every single one of us that came into this room, that um, came in here with a limp, came into this room with scars upon our backs from the arrows that were shot at us, we thank you that we can come because by your stripes we're healed. We can be made whole. We can be a people of forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Lord, we can be a community that values every single human life because we are one of those lives that you valued and and proved that on the cross. So Lord, we posture ourselves first and foremost to receive your love this morning. Receive your forgiveness. Maybe that's that's your first step this morning. To say, Lord, I need to receive that. Would Would I see how you see me? And would that change how I see others? Would you move us into a people that 
it says in 2 Corinthians 5, as a people of the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Oh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I just lean in as we worship and we sing this out as a prayer to him. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.